Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, and here is your wrap on Super Tuesday. What a Super Tuesday! If I'm going to win all of these states with tremendous numbers, I think it's awfully hard to say that's not the person we want to lead the party. But we are the only campaign that has beaten Donald Trump once, twice, three times. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton had very big nights, and Ted Cruz did better than expected. We will talk about what's next for them, and we'll talk about Bernie Sanders and Marco Rubio. Thirteen states voted on Super Tuesday, and more delegates were awarded than any other single day this election. So we've got a lot to unpack. First, some introductions. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and the campaign. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover tech and the campaign. And I'm Ron Elving, editor, correspondent, journalist emeritus. I love that That's title. Right. <laughs> All right. So got to point out, I am not with you guys today. I'm coming to you from Burlington, Vermont. This is where the Bernie Sanders campaign spent last night, which I was covering. So let's start with them on the Dem side of this race. Can we do a state by state? Yeah, sure. So Hillary Clinton won Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Massachusetts, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia. Bernie Sanders won Colorado, Minnesota, Oklahoma, and Vermont. So on its face, sounds like Clinton did kind of marginally better than Sanders, but it was actually a really big night for her. Explain why. This is this is the inverse of what happened to Hillary Clinton in 2008 when she concentrated on states but not delegates and woke up one day and Barack Obama was ahead in delegates and then got the superdelegates. Well, she learned that lesson. And she wound up with 544 to Sanders' 349. Now, these are pledged delegates. Mm-hmm. These are the ones you earn with your votes in primaries and caucuses. If you count in the superdelegates that really anger many Bernie Sanders supporters, but this is the system and these superdelegates exist, if you add them in, her lead is now 1,000. She's just over 1,001 to 371. That is a lead of 630 delegates. That's why at this point, if you're a Bernie Sanders supporter, the prospects look a little bleak. Yeah. And we should mention, Sam, that uh, these numbers are current as of Wednesday morning, uh, about mid-morning, but they will go up. There'll be more precincts reporting. There'll be absentee ballots found. And of course, the delegate numbers are always going up a little bit. And there was a memo that was sent out from the Clinton campaign this morning that basically said verbatim, Sanders' campaign continues to pursue a strategy focused on states rather than delegates. It seems like Clinton's game is a long game. That uh, I've, I've got it right in front of me. It says he will continue to win elections along the way, but it will make little difference to Hillary's pledged delegate lead. In order to catch up, Sanders doesn't have to start winning a few states. He needs to start winning everywhere and by large margins. And it's so interesting because I went to a press conference this morning with Sanders senior staffers, and they said they have a clear plan to close that gap in delegates by June. I mean, ex- explain that, Sam, though. What, I just what, don't even see mathematically yeah, how that their is plan? possible. So what's they their said plan? that if you look at the margins in the states that Sanders won, he can expect to win in the surrounding states that mirror those states' populations, and that Bernie Sanders should do better with blacks in the North, particularly blacks in Michigan, who might like what Bernie is saying on issues of trade. Uh, But they had a very rosy disposition. And all week they've been telling us basically that Super Tuesday would always be the best day for Clinton, but that Sanders' best days are still to come. And that now after Super Tuesday, they've said that time is on their side. Sam, I wish you could see Ron's face. Oh, I know. I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying that's what they're saying. I'm saying that's what they're saying. Let's understand that what they are saying makes perfect sense from the standpoint of a campaign that wants to go 
to Philadelphia in July and have a strong standing there, perhaps have one night of the convention that is devoted entirely to Bernie Sanders and his message. And they need to earn that by staying in the race. And as Bernie Sanders says, campaigning in all 50 states, or at least contesting, if not physically going to all 50 states, only 15 have voted thus far. Let's hear from the other 35. That all makes perfect sense. But when you start talking about how African-Americans are going to vote terribly differently in the North, let's look at Boston and how Boston voted yesterday. The African-Americans in metropolitan Boston looked very much like the ones elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And I also think, though, that Bernie Sanders seems to feel a duty to see it through for those small donors. He's not taking super PAC money. He's not taking really big donors. He feels in his gut that he owes his small supporters to do this, right? And they can keep giving money, right? Because, exactly. because most of them have given so little. Because yeah, he raised $42 million last month alone. Like, he can keep doing this. Yes. Lisa, do you see him continuing on to the convention just as a sort of... Um to make a point. Yes, I do. And I think that it's a very large point and an important mm-hmm. point. It is the reason Bernie Sanders got in this race. Unlike most other people who run for president as seriously as he has, he probably did not think at the beginning of this campaign when he was at 3% in the polls, as he tells us, he probably did not think he was going to wind up in the White House himself, but he knew he could make a difference to the campaign, make a difference to the Hillary Clinton campaign, make a difference to her presidency if there should be one, and move the country. So when he said last night, this is not just about electing a president. As I think all of you know, this campaign is not just about electing a president. It is about transforming America. He meant it, and it means something to a lot of other people. So, Ron, my question is, if Bernie Sanders continues on to the convention and Hillary Clinton does not yet seem to be doing well with young voters, does the the longevity of this campaign, does that hurt her? Do we see any consequences by him staying on through, uh, through the convention, regardless of whether or not he has the potential to win the nomination? Much depends, I would guess, on the tone of the campaign, the tone of the competition between the two of them, the degree of symbiosis that might be achieved where he helps her and she helps him make his point. And if they can do this as a kind of, you know, not a team exactly, but as uh, a team of rivals, if you will, or a friendly competition, they can make the Democratic Party stronger in the long run. They can also make it a lot more interesting. Otherwise, all the attention is going to go to the Republican side. You know, I've heard a lot of arguments, especially the 2008 race and and how long it went, that it actually helped Barack Obama. And Asma, you've talked uh, in the newsroom a lot about how you think that Barack Obama did well in, in your home state of Indiana simply because he was because fighting Barack that with Hillary Obama Clinton. and Hillary Clinton. Ron edited that story of mine years ago. <laughs> I did this piece where I went to my home state of Indiana because nobody had campaigned there since Bobby Kennedy. And because the candidates and their spouses and their surrogates were campaigning there, in, in my mind, that is what helped tilt the balance in the general election for a state that nobody had really thought would actually turn blue in 2008. So what do we know about who voted for Clinton or Sanders and why? I think we got a clear picture that uh, she was she won the support overwhelmingly of African-American voters. Um, and, you know, when I say that, I will say I get some pushback uh, on Twitter at times saying that, you know, black voters are not a monolith. And that is certainly true. But I think if we look at the margins of victory, Hillary Clinton won by huge margins. I mean, I'm looking at exit polls that show, you know, more than 50 point margins in Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, 
Arkansas, Texas, Virginia. And these were not, you know, small gains. And I think that that is what she needed to do. She needed to show that she could win the support of African-American voters across the South. And and she did that. And she also won among white voters in the South. Uh, There was, generally speaking, not a great deal of traction for Bernie Sanders in states below the Mason-Dixon line, with the exception of Oklahoma, where he did actually win the primary. And it was not a caucus like Minnesota and Colorado. It was a primary, and Bernie Sanders did win there. And so it seems as if Clinton is really looking ahead to the general election and her messaging now, like she had this line here from her speech last night. America never stopped being great. We... We have to make America whole. We have to fill in. Fill in what's been hollowed out. She's got to work on her timing with the crowd yells. <laughs> she hasn't mastered that yet. But anyways, this is a not-so-direct hit against Trump, correct? Yeah, I, I think there's no question. And I think that's also an indication that Hillary Clinton has put Bernie Sanders in her rearview mirror and is focusing on November at this point. We saw how her speeches shifted over the last few days. And we also saw, even more tellingly, a lot of, of strategically leaked articles to places like the New York Times talking about Clinton's fall message and how she's going to to contrast herself with Donald Trump, how the Clinton campaign is going to talk about Trump's, you know, temperament and whether he's qualified to be president, whether we want someone like him in the White House. So it seems like they are they are ready to move on from the primary season, even if Bernie Sanders is going to keep contesting these these primaries and caucuses. And they've even and like I've even heard Hillary Clinton begin to use the line like we need more love and kindness on like this campaign. Like she's trying to pivot to being the positive, nice one compared to Trump. No question that she is using terminology that contrasts deliberately with the, shall we say, uh, on its way down rhetoric that has dominated the Republican race in the past week and and really through the entire campaign season thus far. Yeah, but we got to point out, uh, I was at Bernie headquarters last night and in his speech, he basically said, whatever, I'm still here. I am (laughs) still going on. We have some tape of that, right? At the end of tonight, 15 states will have voted, 35 states remain. And let me assure you that we are going to take our fight for economic justice, for social justice, for environmental sanity, for a world of peace to every one of those states. You know, the mood in that room last night was a victory party, and the mood at the majority of the rallies I've been to with Bernie Sanders since Saturday, and I've been to, gosh, five or six, it, it feels like he is a candidate to beat. And I think that he and his core supporters who show up at those rallies have no intention of stopping. I mean, the reality is, though, he's talking about states. And I think the reality, as Ron kind of hinted at earlier, is winning Minnesota and winning Vermont is not the same as winning Texas and Georgia. Exactly. Let's put it, let's put it in really cold numeric terms. You take the four states where Bernie Sanders won on Super Tuesday. You total up his total vote in those four states. It was 480,000 votes. Hillary Clinton got 100,000 votes more than that in Georgia alone. And she got even bigger totals in Massachusetts and, of course, Texas. So it's not that Sanders' campaign is not a victory because it is a victory for him relative to expectations. And it's a victory for his point of view and his philosophy, which will march on. All right, let's talk about the Republicans. The big headline is that Mr. Donald Trump won, and he won in a lot of different places. Why is that a big deal? 
I mean, yep, he won from Alabama to Massachusetts to Virginia. He also won Georgia, Tennessee, Vermont, and Arkansas. I think he really ran the table. I've got I've got a hot take on this. <laughs> we want... Hot take. We need like a little sound for hot takes. So I think that Donald Trump is much better off having won seven states than had he won 10 or 11 states. And I think that's because now Ted Cruz has an argument to keep fighting. He says, I won three states last night. Marco Rubio has an argument to keep fighting. He says, I finally won a state. I won Minnesota and my states are coming up. John Kasich is still hanging around. You know, if Donald Trump had run the table, perhaps one or two of these guys would have had a reality check and gotten out of the race. And then we'd get that much hoped for moment along among a lot of Republicans saying, now it's a one-on-one race. Now we can consolidate. But now everybody has a reason to keep going on. And, and Trump can continue to, to be 20 or 30 points ahead of everybody else. You know, let, let's, let's say that this is probably the worst nightmare for Reince Priebus. Now, I just like to say Reince Priebus, but he's I love actually, that name. <laughs> he is actually a real person. He is the chairman of the Republican National Committee. But let's, let's just imagine if you wanted to get to a place where there was one anti-Trump candidate or one alternative to Donald Trump. And that was going to happen on Super Tuesday and either Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or John Kasich. Somebody was going to emerge and be the alternative. This was the worst scenario. Even Kasich got a couple of encouraging second place finishes. You know, maybe there wasn't a lot of daylight for Ben Carson, but Marco Rubio can say, oh, look, see, I'm not getting shut out. My message is starting to resonate. And of course, Ted Cruz is now up to four states, three last night and then plus Iowa, where he has actually slain the dragon. It can be done. So my thing with Rubio like he won one state Minnesota only Minnesota but he's still basically saying I'm the guy I'm the guy when does that stop it is what that is his audacity deal? of hope the audacity of nope I mean like seriously. he didn't even get to 20 percent in a couple states he didn't meet the threshold for delegates in a couple states and, and while we're talking about small vote totals uh, he won in Minnesota with something like 41,000 votes Oh my! Forty-one thousand. I mean, that—that's—that's that's a mayoral election in a mid-sized. So town. I can talk a little bit about the exit polls, and I will be the the voice that says, and maybe this is sort of controversial to to some establishment Republicans, but I do not see a clear path to victory for Marco Rubio. Uh, when you looked prior to Super Tuesday, I think conventional wisdom was that Donald Trump pulled a vast majority, maybe almost exclusive support from white working class voters. I think yesterday's results are a clear indication that that is not true anymore, that, that Donald Trump has a broad coalition of support. Yes, he he did well, and, and you could argue he won or tied with college graduates pretty much across the board with the exception of Virginia. I mean, but hey, isn't that where the establishment lives? Virginia. Marco yeah. Rubio did well in Virginia. He was only a couple three percentage points behind. Winning McLean. He won McLean, Virginia. <laughs> the, the we should let of, our listeners know McLean. Yes, McLean is a wealthy suburb. So goes McLean. <laughs> that's right. They drive home from K Street to McLean. Uh, no, they have somebody drive them home <laughs> to McLean. <laughs> oh. right. the, the Uber driver knows that when he picks someone up on K Street, he just takes them automatically to and McLean. And it's the Uber black car, not that Uber X foolishness. That's right. I don't want to ride in one of those. My gosh, they pick up other people. <laughs> That's Uber pool. So, okay, so it seems like Cruz is, is in the better position. Does that mean at some point the establishment gets behind him or they just don't like him at all? Oh, it's yeah. so. this is why it gets so excruciating for Reince Priebus because the establishment that he's supposed to represent, and now I'm talking about Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, they are desperately seeking an alternative to Donald Trump. They're terribly worried about Trump's effect on other races, other Republicans running for other offices. But if it's going to be Ted Cruz, ooh, you just hit a 
concrete wall because they cannot stand Ted Cruz. What is it with Ted Cruz? Is he that bad to them? It, it goes to, among other things, Ted Cruz's insistence on the government shutdown a couple of years ago. The Republicans were extremely upset with him about that, particularly the leadership of his own party. His organizing of House Republicans against their own leadership from the Senate. Uh, these are things that are not done, and they're not done for a reason because they do damage to the personal relationships by which Congress must operate. And Ted Cruz has run roughshod over all of that and made clear his contempt for it. But, like, what if the path for them is just to keep Rubio in there till the convention and hope that it's brokered? Is that what they're thinking? That is one of the things that they are thinking, although usually what happens with a brokered convention, and, of course, we haven't had one in a very long time, but if you go back to state conventions, you go back to historical conventions, what happens is a dark horse, and this is where this phrase comes from, emerges at the convention and becomes the other option. This is how we got President Harding. So before we get into that scenario, tell us what a broker convention entails, Sir Elving. Let's stop calling it brokered convention for starters. Okay, because, because, all right. <laughs> because there really aren't any brokers. You can't have 2,500 people on the floor make a decision when they have multiple choices. So people are going to have to get together to represent them. There are going to be people from each delegation who get together and try to talk about what to do. And there will be suggestions put forward. And yes, there will be leaders and there will be representatives. But to call them brokers as if to suggest that they could deliver it to somebody uh, in some sort of skullduggerish fashion is to miss the point. What we all want to see is democracy at work on the floor of a convention the way it was uh, thought of 150 years ago, or even 100 years ago, or even 80 or 90 years ago. Uh, We would love to see that. But whether or not Donald Trump is going to need that to get the nomination, right now you'd have to say his odds are he will get to the convention with more than 1,237 delegates and be the nominee on the first ballot. So, Ron, what about the idea, though, that Donald Trump um, he has a moment. He has the momentum. He's already won a good chunk of delegates. Uh, starting March fifteenth, we'll have states that are winner take all, including Marco Rubio's home state of Florida. Say hypothetically, the Donald Trump wins that state, and he continues to win many states. I mean, is there not the chance that both him and his supporters will say ultimately that this is not fair, and that there will be some sort of revolt? Right? Yes, that seems more damaging. With all the talk about damaging the party and the brand, denying the nomination to the person who got far and away the most votes seems who incredibly democratically damaging. was, you could argue, elected. And also, here's the thing that Trump is saying. He's saying, I'm not just winning. I'm getting crazy record turnout for the GOP. And that is just more of the case that Trump deserves this. Our party is expanding. And all you have to do is take a look at the primary states where I've won. And just look, we've gone from X number to a much larger number. That hasn't happened to the Republican Party in many, many decades. So I think we're going to be more inclusive. I think we're going to be more unified. And I think we're going to be a much bigger party. And I think we're going to win in November. But, like, Trump has this army of new supporters that could be very, very pissed if he is not given this nomination, right? Yes, and a danger for the Republicans if they do try to stop Donald Trump with some sort of a convention maneuver is that he will say, I told you, you didn't treat me fairly. I was going to run on my own, and he could still do that. Now, it's very hard to get on the ballot in all the states and so forth, but he only would need to say, I'm taking my people and leaving, and I'm going to find some other way to run in November, and that would split the party very badly and damage it more severely, perhaps, than nominating somebody who is a problematic candidate. So just a little side note, uh, that tape we heard from Trump last night, he was introduced by one New Jersey governor, Chris Christie, 
Christie then went on to stand behind Trump while Trump gave his speech in Palm Beach. And the look on Christie's face was problematic, to say the least. Uh, a lot of folks on Twitter said that it looked like he had been taken hostage. Ooh. But here's the thing. It's like, I just get the feeling that half of Chris Christie wanted to endorse Trump and the other half did not. And he still seems very personally conflicted about what he's doing. Because he, like, just months ago, he was talking trash about Donald Trump. But his endorsement, I think, also comes back to the sheer point of when we saw in that debate how much he despises Marco Rubio, which to me still leads back to that inevitable question of how the party attempts to corral support behind a guy who many people, Marco Rubio, feel very polarized about as well. Let's add one last conspiratorial note. If the convention is going to be open and if they're going to look for a dark horse and if there are going to be an awful lot of people there who like Donald Trump, who might be the party's choice to represent both the party the establishment, if you will, and also those people who like Donald Trump. Possibly Chris Christie imagines that would be him. Ah. You know, the more I hear you say Dark Horse, the more that Katy Perry song, Dark Horse, is stuck in my head. It's yeah. kind of the perfect pop song. Anyway, got to move on. Before we wrap this thing up, let's talk about delegates on the GOP side. It is more complicated than for the Democrats. We still have five candidates in the GOP race. Uh, what is the delegate picture going forward? Well, according to our delegate tracker on the election site, right now Trump is at 316, Cruz is at 226, and Marco Rubio is at 106. But those delegate uh, numbers are going to change quickly in the next couple of weeks because up until this point, delegates have been awarded proportionally. That means even though Donald Trump wins big in a state, uh, several candidates walk away with, with delegates. That starts to shift on March 15th, and importantly, in states like Ohio, home turf for John Kasich, and Florida, home turf for Marco Rubio, those states are winner-take-all. So the argument from these candidates who aren't Donald Trump is that they start winning in these states, they get all the delegates, they can make up that ground. Okay. That's the argument, at least. All right, that's a wrap for this episode. We'll be back with our weekly roundup on Friday, where we'll cover the Republican debate on Thursday night. Yes, there is another debate. Oh, Okay. Anyway, between now and then, find us on Twitter at nprpolitics.org or catch our coverage on your local public radio station. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and the campaign. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover tech and the campaign. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent, journalist emeritus. Hope you enjoyed your Super Tuesday. Happy Wicked Wednesday or happy whatever day you find yourself listening. Thank you for being here for the NPR Politics Podcast. 